Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that I get a chance to speak to Heather Holloman again today. She's got another new book. I think this makes number eight. I've kind of lost track, but she'll she'll remind me. She uh, is a associate teaching professor at Penn State, and her students uh, call her a walking exclamation point. That's all you need to know about Heather. Heather, welcome. Hello, I'm so glad to be back. This is going to be so fun. <laughs> it always is. It so, always is. Yeah. Uh, I, I just have to tell you, I did a little field research, a little field study today. I met a friend of mine for a late breakfast, and I brought your book in, The Sixth Conversations, and I said, all right, I'm going to talk to you, because he had a big conversation he had today with somebody, and I I uh, said, "Let's. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try some of this out on you. I'm, I'm going to give you a little coaching. And I went through oh, good. parts of your book, and he was like, oh, that's so good. That's so good. And then he texted me about an hour later, tell me the name of that book again. So I think we'll sell at least one book today. That makes me so happy. Yeah. One book one book more than sold yesterday, so that's great. <laughs> yeah, because it's such good stuff. The book is The Six Conversations, Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. And you also have This Seat Saved, which I find fascinating. I don't know. Which one are we talking about today? I would love to talk about This Seat Saved. Yeah, so re- just remind us about y- your book, um, This Seat Saved. Um, you're a, you teach creative writing, so this is fiction, correct? Well, I teach um, essay writing and argumentative essay writing. writing. Yes. So, well, so this is actually a huge departure for me, but a dream come true. I've always wanted to write fiction, but Bill, I am a terrible fiction writer. I had to learn how to tell a good story. Okay. So this 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 book comes out of many years of studying how to tell a good story so kids will actually turn the page. I had to learn about tension and how to build a good setting and characterization. So it only took, you know, 40 years for my dream to come true to be a novelist. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so it is a um, fiction book. So it's a story of a little girl who enters middle school and her two best friends have grown up faster than she has. They're popular. They're beautiful. They have more money than she has. They're athletic, you know, all the things. And she just is a late bloomer. And so when that first day of school she walked into the lunchroom and she realizes she's not invited to sit at the popular table. And the book is about her journey to discover she's already seated at the best table with Jesus and how that healed her heart and set her on a path of just maturity and growth and really embracing who she is. Mm-hmm. Does she encounter some bullying and all that sort of stuff? Yes. All the things that I went through as a seventh grader and my daughters have gone through. And really, as I spoke on my nonfiction book, Seated with Christ, I realized this felt like a quintessential, you know, universal experience that most everyone in the world has a moment when they're not invited to sit at a table that they really hoped they wanted that invitation. So it includes that. And then the moment of realizing that you might actually have an enemy, someone who bullies you, 
you know, a lot of younger readers that are boys have read this book and resonate with that feeling of having a bully. So we deal with that and how she deals with that situation, which is great conversation. There's discussion questions where you can talk with your young reader. You know, did she handle this well? What did you think about this bully? And you also get insight into why the bully became a bully. So lots of great conversations with your young reader about this book. Mm -hmm. I want to hear a little bit, Heather, about your personal experience back in middle school that gave you some of these ideas. Where did all this material come from? You go so deep, Bill. I love that you go right to my pain. I can't can't help it. (laughs) I learned it from you. Well, as you as you will have read in my nonfiction book, Seated with Christ, I remember the exact moment when I walked into the lunchroom and realized I wasn't popular. <laughs> and that wound stayed with me until I was about 40 years old. And part of the problem was I was reading grammar books for fun. I had no chance, Bill. I was a nerdy girl. I, I was a national debater. I was also obsessed with nature. I had a canoe and I would just go and fish and be in my canoe when all the other girls were, you know, at the mall wearing makeup and all those things. So I remember those feelings of thinking, okay, I do not fit in here. And I, I love semicolons and verbs, you know, where are the, where's the table for that girl? (laughs) So it was really painful, but what happened was um, it was a summer day in late July eight years ago, and I was reading Ephesians 2, carrying that wound of just, okay, I didn't have a seat with those girls. Where's my seat going to be? So really all my life, I was fighting for a seat at whatever table I thought would, you know, bring me, you know, purpose in life. And Ephesians 2 says right there, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And the end of that chapter says that he, you know, we're his masterpiece and he has prepared good works for us in advance to do. And I just remember thinking, wait a second, I've been fighting for a seat at the table and and God's word is telling me I'm already seated at the greatest table with the greatest king. So it really healed my heart. And I thought, okay, how how have I been fighting for a seat at the table since the time I was 12 years old until now? So God's word is powerful. He sent forth his word and healed me as the Psalms say. So yeah, I was an awkward kid. And I don't know about you, but don't you think the kids that were really awkward, quirky. They tend to be doing really interesting things as adults. That's I love so I love seeing their journey. Like the ones that we thought were never going to make it are actually thriving. They're the ones that have the best of everything. So I like to encourage young people with that. Like the things that make you feel like you don't fit in are the things that are going to be wildly successful. You're going to be wildly successful as an adult because of those traits. So Heather, when you were at that age and you realized that you weren't at the cool table, did you think that that the ship had sailed and that this was going to be what life was going to be like for you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, when you're 12 years old, yeah. that moment of rejection, it's a wound that then becomes a scar that you, like my character says, it's like a scar, but on the inside. Mm. And she just could not recover from that first moment when you, when you realize, okay, I'm not good enough. And it's really when shame enters into your heart. My, my PhD is on the emotion of shame. I studied shame for five years at University of Michigan, and I'm fascinated by the impact of these kind of negative emotions and how you recover from them. So am I allowed to throw it back to you? Did you have a middle school? You know, I use the word trauma because even if it seems insignificant, not having a seat at the lunchroom counts as a traumatic experience in the life of a young person. No, I didn't have 
an experience that was negative or I didn't sit there and go, hmm, I, I'm not at the table that I want to be at because I, I feel like I was at the table I wanted to be at. But I, I do I do look back with some real sadness over a specific girl who didn't get a seat at a table that she wanted to get at. And we thought it was okay to tease her and to bully her. And, you know, we were fairly innocent kids uh, in Catholic grade school. I mean, we were we were nice kids, right? But we weren't well, right. because we were we were teasing her, and we thought it was funny. And and I, maybe nobody, no adult stepped in and said, "I see what you're doing. You think it's funny? It's not." That would have been nice. That would have been helpful. That would have been nice. Well, it's interesting. I you know I've the book has been out for a while, and a lot of different readers have read it, and some young people have actually contacted me to say. You know, Mrs. Holloman, I'm not Alita. That's my main character. They say, I wasn't her, but I was the popular girl. Mm. And the guilt they carry because they say things like, I didn't realize, or maybe they did realize that they were excluding people. But but like you said, you know, you're just kids. You don't know what you're doing. So that is a complexity in the novel because you realize the perspective of this popular girl. Her name is Margot. She's beautiful. Everyone wants to be with her. And she really doesn't understand the impact she's having on people. And a lot of girls that have that quality, that charisma, they call it, you know, the alpha female, they don't choose it and they don't often know the impact they have on people. So you get that sense of, okay, is Mar- is this character mean or is this just she's living her life? So I love that. And a little girl down the street, I said, do you think Margot intends to be mean? And man, Bill, she molded that over for a long time. She's like, I don't know. I have to think about this. So it really does make you think when you're a young person reading this, you're going to have a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. When we started this discussion, Heather, I didn't think I would think of my grade school uh, classmate named Lynn, but uh, she did get teased uh, nonstop. And all of us were, you know, were guilty for, for uh, teasing her. And sadly, when she was 20 years old, she put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. Yeah. I mean, so that's hard. That's a hard story to have. I don't know all that transpired with her through high school and whatnot, but I certainly feel that uh, we contributed in part to her unhappiness. You know, that is something when you look back on middle school years, I do remember the guilt I felt. There was a girl that was bullied. I mean, actually harmed. I mean, people would push her around and I was a bystander. I never stood up for her. I Mm. never... I never intervened. And so there's a lot of, you know, it's really a, it's a, it can be a dark time to look back on that and think, you know, could I have done something different? What I love at the end of my novel, though, which relates to the story you're telling is once you know you're seated with Christ, my character goes back into the lunchroom and she says, okay, well, now what? If I'm at the best table already, now what? And she looks around the lunchroom for who doesn't have a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. And she invites those people to her table. And in the book, in the in the discussion guide, I ask young readers, do you think you would ever have that kind of courage and confidence to invite people to your table who didn't have a seat? Because I want to put it in their mind that they could actually be that leader. I mean, how different could it have yeah. gone? For you and I both, if you would have, you know, stood up for, for your um, bullied friend and I would have stood up for the girl who was being pushed around. So yeah, these are hard conversations, but important ones to have. The mental health issues are so, so just 
this population is suffering with anxiety, depression, and the number one protective factor is belonging and good relationships. So, you know, couple that with the book I wrote on having better conversations, and you're really going to help your children thrive if you start talking about these things now. Mm -hmm. You know, Heather, I love occasionally doing short surveys. So I'm only asking for five people to respond, but I would love for you to uh, type that I was at the table or not at the table. Just curious to see the first first five people that text in. Uh, If you were at the table, text in at the table. And if you weren't at the table, uh, text in not at the table or just the word not. (laughs) My sociologist professor is going to love this. Go ahead. Oh, good. So (laughs) uh, text it to 877-933-2484. So at the table or not at the table. 877-933-2484. We'll take a break and be right back with Dr. Heather Holloman. Uh, She's got a couple of books. And matter of fact, I think I've got some books to give away today, which I'm excited about. But the one we're chatting about right now is called This Seat Saved. It's a novel. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. So glad to be back with Heather Holloman. Her new book is a novel. It's called This Seat's Saved. All right, Heather, you want some of the results of the survey? Yes. Here we go. Not at the table. Not. Not even in the room. (laughs) Not at the table. Not at the table. Keep going. Let's see. Um, not uh, bo- actually at both tables. Here's another one. I was never at the table. Wow. And then one was blessed enough to be at both tables. I never really picked one, but would alternate. And the last one that just came in was not at the table. So clearly the majority of people who have uh, texted in said, I wasn't at the table. Nobody saved a seat for me. I was not at the cool table. Well, exactly. That's what, at least my experience and the experience of my daughters. And, you know, I feel like everyone has their tale of rejection. So I really hope my book helps heal that wound and draws people into a relationship with Jesus where they realize my favorite family motto, every rejection is God's protection. Ooh, you've said that before on the show. I know. And I love that. I stand by it. I love every rejection is God's protection. Yeah. Do say more about that, because I think that's so important. Well, and I don't want to stereotype anything here, but what I have found is the tables that I that I didn't, where I didn't have an invitation, you know, a lot of those children ended up not being nice people, and, and they became, you know, worse and worse in high school, and I thought, well, maybe the Lord saved me from, from some things, because even as a 13 year old, they, those people were drinking, you know, marijuana, you know, a lot of, um, you know, even having sex. And I thought, well, okay, is this who I'm going to be? And I can see now that had I been at that table, I would have gone in that direction. And so with my girls, I was able to say, you know, I think 
the Lord protects you from certain people. And it's so painful if you're not invited to this party, but maybe he's protecting you from something that you can't see. So I love that. And and it's deeply theological because you have to believe in God's sovereignty and his providential care for you. Because if God is in control of your life and he's good, then every rejection is his protection. And even if it wasn't like he was protecting you necessarily from something at the moment you experience that rejection, because he's so good, he's already working it for your good. But a 13-year-old, 12-year-old would say, how, how good is God's providential protection when I'm not popular? Exactly. So in the book, we realize some things. So Alita isn't invited to this party over the summer, but later she finds out some bad things were happening there. And in her mind, even though, you know, it took a few months, but she says, wow, maybe God was protecting me. Is it true that God was protecting me? And of course, the, my favorite moment in the novel is when she actually does get an invitation to the popular table and she's sitting there with all these popular girls and she hates it. It's not <laughs> what she thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And she, she'd rather be at the table with the kids talking about, um, you know, tree sicknesses of Pennsylvania because she loves the Pennsylvania forest and she loves talking about nature. And I think that that is true. A lot of people finally get the invitation that they've been waiting for and they get there and they think, this isn't who I am. I thought I wanted this the whole time. God had another table for me that was made and perfect just for me where he had good works prepared for me to do right here. But it is, these are deeply theological concepts, but I don't think even eight-year-olds who are reading the book love that idea of, you know, what's happening to me is God's perfect plan and he's going to work something for good, even if it's painful right now. Mm -hmm. Do we learn anything about the fear of missing out in this book? Well, yes, because that's the entire premise of not having a seat at the table. You think I'm missing out. I yeah. mean, there's nothing good for me here. Um, and and part of the problem is you're imagining that everyone else is living this extraordinary life and that somehow you're missing out on the good things that God has for you. And so there's a wise mentor in the book who tells Alita my favorite quote that's in my nonfiction book, Seated with Christ, and it comes from the Hayden Planetarium, where the museum guide has to tell the children to stop fighting for a seat in the front row because they're in an arena where there are no best seats. So the guide has to say, children, all seats provide equal viewing of the universe. No matter where you sit, you won't miss any part of the show. And the mentor explains to Alita that no matter where God puts you in your life, you have equal access to his love, his provision, his peace and joy, and he has special blessings exactly where you are. And and the argument goes, I mean, how can I say that? Well, Paul was writing this from a Roman prison that he was seated with Christ. So surely he understood, okay, I'm in a terrible seat, but yet I'm able to fix my mind on Jesus and know the secret of being content in every situation. And so I love sharing that with young people. And when I'm talking to older audiences, I remind them of Johnny Erickson Tata when she was in her diving accident and in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. I heard her say from a stage, I'd rather be seated in this wheelchair knowing Jesus than be given a chance to walk without him. And I love telling women that, that no matter how terrible your seat is, if Jesus is there, it's actually the best seat. You'd rather have that than your best day without Jesus. Mm, I love what it, I love what Johnny says too about 
the day she goes home to be with the Lord, she says, I hope I can arrive there in my wheelchair so I can then turn it around and send it right back to hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Dr. Heather Holloman is my guest. Uh, We're talking about her book, This Seat's Saved. It's a novel. And she's also got another book, which I love, which we've talked about before, called The Six Conversations, Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. Now, here's the deal. I've got five copies of her book, The Six Conversations, to give away. And I have two copies of her book, This Seat's Saved. So I've got seven books from Heather, that uh, you can enter to uh, win one of them today. Probably can't specifically win one or the other, but you, if you, if you do win one or the other, you're going to be really happy with either one. So all you have to do to get in on the drawing is text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. And Dr. Heather Holloman, um, when you uh, wrote the book, The Six Conversations, I think we first talked about this a couple of years ago. Is this a couple of years old now? Yes. Yeah. At least, at least. Yeah. and Maybe I, maybe one year. Yeah, 2020. 20, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Not only is this a great book, but it's a great reference book. Just like today, I've had this book around for a long time, and I picked it up today because I knew my friend had a hard conversation, and I took it to breakfast, and... I shared some things from your book, and he was, you know, he ne- almost never pays this close of attention to me when I'm talking to him, but today he was really, really dialed in. Wow, that's good to hear. Yeah. No, it is a great reference book, and it, it I love the book because it's highly academic in terms of research, but it reads as if it's just this easy book, like a, a sixth grader could read it. Yeah, no, it's really, really laid out well. Um, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Dr. Heather Holloman. If you have a question or a comment about anything that she has shared so far about her book, This Seat Saved. Uh, We're going to chat a little bit when we come back about the six conversations because it's so awesome. But we will will take a break, and we do have seven copies of her books to give away. So text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I'm back with Dr. Heather Holloman. She loves uh, helping people have better conversations, and I'm so grateful for her book, The Sixth Conversations, Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. I've got some copies to give out. If you want to get in on the drawing text, the word book to 877-933-2484. Heather, because there's more people having a harder time connecting and we're spending a lot more time looking at little screens and, and not looking up even when we're in public, so it's even harder to connect. But when it comes to having... And starting meaningful conversations with others. Can you give give us some coaching on how I can do that better? 
Well, first of all, I think listeners, including myself and my own family, we need to really prioritize this as a mental health, physical health, and, you know, this is a big deal for your mental health and your physical health. The research coming out of even the Surgeon General's, you know, report last month that loneliness is affecting your health. It's a, it's creating, um, you know, all these bad outcomes. You're more likely to die early. You're you're increasing your risk of stroke and, you know, heart attack. And it, he says it's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, the effects of chronic loneliness and just the levels of depression and anxiety, and even people who have dealt with trauma, they're saying that the biggest thing you can do is find warm, connected relationships because it's so good for your brain to do that. Now, of course, I love meaningful conversations because I love talking to people about Jesus. And when you're able to have a warm connection with someone, you're much more likely to be able to talk about your faith in ways that where it won't sound like a sales pitch or like a pivot in the conversation. So getting that mindset right. Like this is good for you. So you can, you actually should get off of your phone. I personally have, you know, limited my time on social media, limited my time interacting with my phone. And I bought some Adirondack chairs to sit in my front yard just so I can sit and actually talk to neighbors, Bill, and it's working. (laughs) So many people are coming by to talk. So the first thing is to tell yourself, this is really good for me. I'm going to invest in my own mental and physical health. And then secondly, to just realize how easy it is to just reframe your mindsets and and the goals of what a conversation should be, what you should be doing in conversation. And then realize this is not something that's going to take a lot of time for you. It's just really simple adjustments and how you're thinking about people and what you want out of a conversation. So the three goals of a conversation are to encourage people to help people with their personal goals and to lead people to a state of marveling or wonder. And so mm-hmm. when I sit out in the Adirondack chairs, that's what I'm doing with the neighbors. And I've had so many great connections just by thinking, okay, I'm going to encourage this person or I'm going to ask this person about what they're working on and if there's any way I can help them or, or encourage them with their projects or we're going to marvel about nature, about hummingbirds or or whatever it is that's happening outside. So. That's my encouragement. Change how you're thinking about the goals of conversation. One of the things you said uh, a couple of years ago, Heather, that I remember is you said our brains don't like the question, how are you? Our brains just don't like that. No, it's an existential. No, it's an existential verb and it doesn't activate mirror neurons. I know that's really nerdy, but it's really hard for the brain to picture that question. So I would never say, Bill, how are you? How have you been doing? It's too hard for you to you're making the the brain work too hard. So if instead I said, Bill, what has surprised you most about this summer? Mm-hmm. Or what cha- what challenged you today? That's easier for you to find an answer than yeah. if I said, Bill, how was your day? So my husband will never say, Heather, how was your trip? Or how, how did teaching go? Mm-hmm. He'll say, you know, what delighted you? Or what surprised you? What challenged you? Just put a vivid verb in there that people can picture you're going to get your kids to open up to you because you're making it easy for the brain. Mm-hmm. And you say, mm-hmm. be curious, believe the best, express yes. concern, and share your life. Now, I exactly. Think, I think that there's oftentimes people are have a hard time being curious because I'm just waiting for you to stop talking so I can start talking about myself. Yeah, exactly. And curiosity is such a gift. I mean, mm-hmm. I was out to dinner last night 
And I was just Where'd waiting for this. We went to, well, we have this place called The Field in State College, and it's like our famous burger joint. It's nice. where all the like football coaches and basketball coaches go. They have like a coaches night. It's just very Big Ten school kind of football play. Think of, think of it like that. Penn Screens State. everywhere. Yeah, everyone's in their Penn State gear. And everyone goes to get burgers, and it's the place where they dump a pile of fries on the table for everyone. They call them table fries. Of course, it's terrible if you're trying to lose weight and get healthy like I am, but I did go. But I remember, because I am thinking about this research every time I'm with someone. So, of course, I realized as I was talking and we we had a great conversation and I was asking great questions and we were really connecting and we were sharing our lives, but I found myself noticing in myself how good it felt when the person asked me a really meaningful question. It just feels good and nobody does it. It's so rare that someone will actually ask a really good question. Like Bill, when was the last time someone asked you a question? that you just loved and you were like, oh my gosh, this person's interested in my opinion. This, I mean, did it happen today? Are people asking you good questions? Well, I I do know what you mean when you get asked a question that kind of lights you up a little bit and and you think, wow, this is, this is not the normal exchange. It's like, where'd you come from? Where where did you get the courage to ask that question? Or, or this is interesting, you know, because we usually start with, how are you fine? How are you good? It's almost like we're that we're not we're not advancing the conversation very much by that, are we? No, and even today, you know, neighbors that again are sitting in my Adirondack chair, they know it's so it's just so wonderful if they're like Heather. Okay, tell me something new about your garden or what's happening with your plum tree. I mean, I just get so excited when people ask about the physical aspects of my garden because the categories of connection are, you know, that's why it's called the six conversations. You can ask, you know, social, emotional, physical, cognitive, you know, volitional and spiritual questions. And so my daughter was outside with me and this neighbor was doing a great job asking me about the physical aspects of my house. And I realized I hadn't asked her a lot about her social life lately. And because my daughter is moving into the freshman dorms at Penn State next month, I said to her, Hey, tell us about what your friends were like in your freshman dorm at your college. Bill, we talked for an hour and (laughs) had the best time. We were laughing. We were reminiscing. I felt so close to her. I saw her on a walk later and she was like, I love that conversation. I'm coming back for more. I was like, I'll be there. So now I got to, I got to, yeah, I got to brew some decaf tonight and sit out there and just connect with neighbors. Yeah. So have you had any home improvement projects you've been working on? Well, here's the thing. I, well, this is actually, you know how I love to talk about the cognitive. It's mm-hmm. my favorite category. So it's I'm going to switch that think, to a cognitive you, question. Yeah. How you think <laughs> about things, how you make sense of things, yes. that kind of thing. Yes. Okay. So when you ask, like, do I have any home improvement projects? What what I would love if, is if you had asked, like, are you struggling as you think about home improvement projects? Here's why. I really want to have an eternal perspective on my home and I don't want to give all my money to something that will burn mm-hmm. in eternity. Do you guys do you guys think like that? Like what am I actually doing with my money because it's so tempting to give all of my money to oh, let's redo our basement or and we don't have like a large house where we don't have anything special but there are things like what if we got a fireplace or 
What if we got a new refrigerator? So, but I struggle because I'm thinking, is this, does this matter for eternity? But maybe I'm just too serious about it because I know, I know the scripture says that God richly provides all things for our enjoyment and wealth isn't, you know, necessarily wrong, but we would have a great conversation, Bill, if we just did the cognitive, like, and I would want to know what you guys think and how you manage how much you give to home improvement. I don't mm-hmm. know. What do you think? Well, I love that you brought up the fact you bought a couple of Adirondack chairs. So that had that had relational purpose yes. in mind because you were going to position yourself in a place yes. where you could be relational. And yet it sounds like you've got some beautiful things going around your house with bushes and flowers and trees and whatnot that people are going to comment about. So it sounds like you're taking care of your house, which is really nice. Um, yeah, you got to take care of the house. But I mean, do I really need to spend a fortune on, I don't know. Yeah, so that's what I'm thinking about. So if I were to be honest, our next project, I think, is to repaint my upstairs. I have an upstairs office that my husband's really jealous of. It's so beautiful. It's where I write all my books. But mm-hmm. I wish he had an office that was as nice as my office. So He's got a basement office, and I, I kind of want to invite him to move up to my office. I don't mm-hmm. know. So that's probably my next project. What about you? Well, uh, I've been going through some improvement projects at my house myself and realizing that once you start, you go, uh-oh, what did I get myself into? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, here's another big check I'm writing. You know, So that kind of thing kind of wears out a little bit, but... You know, I, I love the fact that you're raising the question, uh, does this have eternal significance? Is this going to be something that's going to be a conduit to doing uh, more ministry, creating an environment where more people can come in and feel at home in my home? And right. I think that those are good questions to ask. Right. But people do love to talk about home improvement. You cannot go wrong talking to neighbors about are they working on any projects? So I tried it the other day with a couple walking by with their children and I didn't, I don't have a warm connection with these neighbors. They live at the way end of the street. I've been trying to connect. And I just said, I just threw it out there as the first question. I said, Hey, um, your yard is looking so nice. Are you guys doing any improvements on the inside of your house? They stood there and talked and talked and talked. And then my husband came out and they wanted to talk. And before you know it, it's like, let's have dinner together. You know, it's just so easy to do these conversations where you just start in any category and ask a really curious, you know, a question rooted in curiosity. And the key is to believe the best because a lot of people um, are coming from places of suspicion and judgment um, and anger. Just get out of judgment. Don't be suspicious. Believe that you can learn something from, from the person in front of you. And I need to do that. I've got people at work that I'm not believing the best about, and I'm trying to apply Romans 12 every day to bless those who persecute you, value others above yourself, outdo one another and showing honor. These are things I'm currently working on as well. Yeah, I love that. So some of the categories that you talk about in your book, you talk about something physical, which is pretty easy for people to do. Um, Talk about social. You had mentioned about uh, when you were on before about going to a, a Penn State football game and, you know, the question might be, who are they playing? Or the question might be, who are you going with? Exactly. That would be more and then the, endless, yes. that'd be more the important question. Well, and, yeah. And then endless permutations, endless combinations of questions after that. Yeah. 
or it can be emotional. How are you feeling? What emotions did, did, did this bring up? Whatever experience. And then the cognitive, which we were just chatting about. How do you process what you're thinking? How do you make sense of this? And then volitional, which would be, you know, what's, what's your new goal? What choices do you have in front of you? Uh, how did you, what did you do in a certain situation? What choices did you make? Uh, you know, what do you have to do today? Uh, what choices are you making? What are you prioritizing? And the last one would be spiritual, uh, which m- might be one of the harder ones to bring up. But if you start to establish a friendship and a relationship, eventually that's an easy one to get to. Yeah. I mean, I was out in the Adirondack chairs reading an Andrew Murray book and a neighbor came by with her dog and she just said, hello, you know, I love the chairs. And I went right to the spiritual. I said, look, I didn't realize how good it would feel to be out here feeling connected to God. I'm reading this Andrew Murray book. And she immediately wanted to talk about it. And she was like, well, is it like a meditation? Is it, what is it? I said, oh, it's just helping me think about God and think about connecting with him and his love for me. And we talked for a good 25 minutes and uh, starting in the spiritual category. But, you know, people overlook the volitional category, speaking of like the game. So for example, Penn State football, if I, that, that's the easiest way to start a conversation, obviously, are you going to the game? Did you decide to go to the game is a volitional question. But if Mm -hmm. someone says, yeah, we're going to the game, I would ask another volitional question. How did you guys decide to get season tickets? Cause it's a big deal. It's a big investment of money. Yeah, just stick with the volitional. Hey, tell me, tell me the story of how you guys decided <laughs> to do this, or how did you decide to do that? And it's that's a great conversation, yeah. even about clothing. Hey, how'd you decide to get? You know, kids love it. Young people, tell me why you decided to get the on clouds instead of the Hoka shoes or whatever. <laughs> if if you're in a town with a lot of brands, kids yeah. will go on and on, and they will love you. Yeah, we decided we're not getting the kids braces, but we are getting tickets to the Penn State game season tickets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Actually, student tickets aren't as expensive as I thought. I had to. Stu- I thought it would drown the bank, but student tickets are not as expensive. This is my first Penn State child. Um, Sarah, my older one, goes to University of Pittsburgh, so we're all new to this side of it. Having a student there. All right, take a break, and we'll come back more with Dr. Heather Holloman. Her book, The Six Conversations, and her book, This Seats Saved. I've got um, copies of both. Um, so. Text the word book, get in on the drawing. I can't guarantee which book you get, but if you get either one of them, you'll be thrilled. All right, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. I'm back with Dr. Heather Holloman. We're talking about the sixth converse, the six conversations and this seat saved. And I was reflecting during the break, Heather, because I'm the interviewer, I do the question asking. And it's interesting when you turn around and ask me something. <laughs> it does it does something to my brain. It goes, Oh, that is so nice. Oh, well, you're fascinating. I want to learn. I mean, come on, your bio. So many times I'm going to be like, tell me about those comedy shows. <laughs> tell me about your addiction recovery. I need to yeah. know the whole. Well, 
yeah, I love studying about addiction. So, yeah. I, you know. My my point is how good it felt that you asked a question. So I want to yes. just say, when you ask someone a question, it's going to feel good to them because you're showing that you're curious and interested about them. And that's a big deal. It right. is a big deal. Yeah. Can I want to read something from your book? Because I think this is an important point, and I know listeners will want to hear this. You said, perhaps the most troubling about current controversial climate on social media involves what Forbes magazine recently exposed as our addiction to drama. Um, Public health and behavioral science writer Nicole Roberts said that drama uses the same mechanisms in the brain as opiates, and people can easily become addicted to drama. Like yeah. any addiction, you build up a tolerance that continuously requires more to get the same neurochemical effect. In the case of drama, this means you need more and more crisis to get the same thrill. Seems like there's no shortage of that going on right now. No, and it does become part of people's identity. Like a lot of times I'll talk to students and I say, you know, in terms of persuasion and in terms of like building a warm connection, I say, you know, no one really cares if you're outraged or offended. Like that's not a persuasive argument. Like you being offended and angry often doesn't persuade people, but it just puts them in a reactive brain state. But they feel like their primary identity is to be offended because it feels so good mm-hmm. to like, you feel like an advocate or an ally. Like I'm offended. Everything's terrible. But what I'm teaching my students is the best way to change someone's mind is to actually form a warm connection with them, believe the best, figure out why they believe what they believe. When it's your turn to share your story and your opinion, you're much more likely to share their, you know, to to change their mind about something. That's what the research shows. And it it it's really important to move people from these reactive brain states to what neuroscientists would call responsive brain states. So move away from drama. Although I will say I do support public protest. Obviously that is important. There's a space for that, but in your interpersonal connections with people, you do not need to have drama be your whole identity. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say believe the best in people, I sometimes wonder, and I wonder if you wonder when you're encountering people, if they're believing the best about you, or do you think that's well, a one-way often- street? Well, that's the thing. Believing the best about them means I'm choosing to believe that they believe the best about me. (laughs) 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 All right. That just came around around to bite me. But thank you. Yes. No, I like it. No, no, no. Yeah. But I'm assuming, I mean, I have to believe people believe the best about me because I don't know, you've been a performer. Mm -hmm. One of the secrets to being able to write books and be a public speaker and even be on the radio is I have to believe that people are kind and like me. Otherwise, I will go hide in shame. So I have to believe in a favorable audience. And it's just a trick of the mind. I literally walk into a room and I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, God called me to be here. I'm going to believe that people like me. Otherwise, you become rejection sensitive, which going back to this seat saved, most people walk into a room and they're reading the room for signs that they are rejected. Wow. I've learned to walk into a room and look for signs that I'm being accepted. And that's a big part of mental health and a big part of how you can become a writer or a public speaker or a teacher. Otherwise, you're doomed. What do you think about that? Like, wh- wouldn't you just cower in shame if you believed your audience didn't like you? Oh, it'd be, it'd be horrible. Right. No, no, you do walk into the studio and you, you're praying that the Holy Spirit will lead you through the show, but you're also hoping that the people who are tuning in are getting something meaningful and that 
they also happen to like me. You hope <laughs> you hope that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and one thing I learned early on in my career was you're not for everyone. So not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's so going to like me. And that's okay. I'm not for everyone. And if I'm with someone and I can tell that maybe my energy or enthusiasm is too much for them, sometimes I'll say, look, I come on strong. I Or, or what do I say? Not I come on strong. Or I'll say, I'm a lot. I'm a lot to handle. You know, I'd make a joke about it. I kind of name what I'm worried that they're thinking about me. And I'll say, look, I know I'm not for everyone. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, such a good point because I realized that as well. I'm not for everybody. You know, even when it comes to comedy, it's like comedy's like ice cream. Everybody likes it. But there's some flavors that people go, nah, that's that's not, not what I like. Yes. Oh, comedy is so, yeah, the potential to recover from a joke that drops. No, I yeah. have so deep respect. <laughs> deep. I've done that. I've done that in college classrooms. I think I'm hilarious and student like cricket silence. They're like, you know, scowling at me. So that's, you know, I bring donuts the next day to try to win their favor. No, I, I love that. Um, I would love for uh, you to just talk a little bit more about the uh, the idea that when you enter a room, you're, you're believing the best because I think there is a lot of people that say, I, I walk in with anxiety or I walk in feeling shy or feeling no one's going to notice me or uh, is anyone going to ask me to sit down next to them? Or what if I say, is this, can I sit here? And they say, this seat is saved, then what? Well, my best advice and something, this has been a lifelong journey for me to walk into a room and to know, well, first of all, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're the most powerful person in that room. If you feel like you're in a room of, you know, that helps me when I go into like faculty meetings. I'm like, technically, I outrank everybody here, you know, because I'm part of the royal priesthood. You can, you can do some, you know, do some things that fill you with confidence. But the other thing is, remember that you are, my favorite other verb in scripture is sent. You're sent there to be an agent of blessing and proclamation. God has you where you are. Because somebody there needs encouragement or somebody there does not yet know Jesus. So I've learned to walk into a room and ask the Lord, who here needs you? Who here needs a word of encouragement? And then it takes my eyes off myself. And I've been doing that since I was 19 years old when I, again, realized I wasn't a popular girl. I would walk into rooms. Nobody would talk to me. And all I was was rejection sensitive. And then I remember the exact day I was like, wait a second, I'm going to walk in this room and be a blessing and stop thinking about myself. So I decided to encourage people and be drawn to people that maybe look like they needed some attention. Mm -hmm. I had more friends that summer than I'd ever had in my entire life because I took my eyes off myself. Yeah. I had that, that idea too, when I was in high school, I always wanted to try to pay attention to the, the kids that weren't getting a lot of attention paid to them. Uh, yeah. So I've always felt like, well, if you're kind of on the fringe, I-, I can go over there. I'll be on the fringe with you. Right. And also I tell my students, you know, they have a one of a kind viewpoint on the universe because of who they are and what they contribute to the world. Nobody else can contribute because nobody else has their background. Like I tell my students, nobody else grew up with your backyard or your family or your, I mean, it's, it's kind of sublime to think about it. Of the 6 billion people on the planet, you have something to contribute here. Like you add, you literally add unique value and to get people excited about like it, when you're not here, something so profound is missing that we don't even have words for it because we can't even articulate 
how powerful it is that you're present with us because you're this, you know, you have infinite value. You bring something that no one else can bring to remind someone of that is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Heather, you have said so many things today that I would like to paint on a piece of wood and hang it up in my house. Let's do it. I mean, we should start a company. Let's go. Let's start. Yes. Let's start a company. Yeah. So I'll send you a list of all the things that I really like that you said today. Because this is Every rejection is God's protection. I love that. Yeah. I love that. There's a lot of good stuff. But thank you so much for doing the show today. It's really nice to talk to you again. And uh, congratulations on on your new book, This Seat's Saved. I'm excited to uh, go through all of it. I didn't get a chance to read all of it before our interview, but I'm looking forward to doing it. I hope you enjoy it. I know and I, will. I have to write another book so I can come back on your program. Oh. I'm like coming on every year now, I no, feel like. You, I just got to keep writing books. You come on anytime you want. Well, have a great evening. Thank you, Heather. I'm going to go sit in my Adirondack chairs. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. That wraps up our show for the night. Thank you for spending time with me. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.